like my bag. It's got elephants on it. In fact, when, when I was deciding what to wear this morning, I, I chose this red shirt. This red shirt was chosen for me by my grandson. Seven years old, and he knows what I like. My daughter bought me this, because she knows I like elephants. My granddaughter chose this. I'm easy to buy for, my, my grandkids tell me. And then the other day, my grandson said, I'm going to imitate Granny. And I thought, oh dear, what's coming? This is what he did. He picked up a cookie and he went, mm. <laughs> and, and I do have a tendency when something tastes really good, I close my eyes and I enjoy it. And um, in a way, that's what I want you to do this morning. I don't want you to close your eyes because um, I, I always take notes of the sermons. I take notes because my memory is really good, but it's short. And God speaks to me, and then I think, oh, I know God spoke to me. I know that. Oh, oh, oh. But what did he say? And I go back to my notes, and I know. So I encourage you to, to take notes, but more than that, I encourage you to focus. Focus on the Lord. Focus because God has something for you this morning. Not because I'm a brilliant speaker, but because I'm a vessel. And God has given me something for you. I, I have to hold the, the whole thing because I don't want you to be distracted by my paper that I'm using. So I'm going to hold the whole thing. Now, um, there was this... Uh, Baptist Church, and they decided they needed a new pastor. And what they used to do was they would invite different people to come and speak, and the one they like, that's the one they choose. So uh, all these different people came and they spoke, and one guy spoke particularly well. And they really liked him, so they chose this guy and said, come and be our pastor. And uh, the first Sunday he got up there, he thanked them for choosing him, and he preached exactly the same sermon that he'd already preached. And they thought, oh, he must be nervous. You know, he's, he's not quite sure what else to share. So they, they didn't say anything. And then the next week, he got up there, and he preached exactly the same sermon. This went on for about four weeks before they got up the courage to, to say, you know, what... what do you have anything else? Uh, and he said, oh, it's, it's simple. As soon as you're living the one I've uh, given you, then I'll move on. Now, don't get nervous. I am not going to give the same sermon. Although God has been dealing with me, and he tends to go deeper and deeper and deeper, so some of the things I share may be familiar, but it's just God going deeper. And um, I, I, I loved what Jonathan shared last week. I took good notes so I could go back and remind myself why I loved it. And one of the things he talked about was about being in the Jubilee Kingdom of freedom and generosity. And uh, I loved that. 
And so I asked the question, well, how do we get to that position of receiving and giving and receiving and giving? And uh, what the Lord was showing me is becoming a Christian is really only the first step. And, you know, why, why looking at the story of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, why did God bring them out of Egypt? What was in God's heart when he brought them out of Egypt? Well, I can tell you his heart was not that they would live in the desert for 40 years. That is not why he brought them out. He wanted to bring them out and bring them in to the abundance in the promised land. So first of all, they get to the Red Sea. And this was like, uh, going through was like a picture of water baptism. 1 Corinthians 10.2, they were all baptized into the cloud of glory, into the fellowship of Moses, and into the sea. So that's like water baptism, when we declare that we've sinned, God, please forgive us, and we receive his forgiveness, and it's wonderful. But then, and apparently they could have walked through the desert in uh, 11 days, I've never done it myself, so I don't know, but this is what I, I read. They could have got through the desert in 11 days. And, oh, thank you. I can see. And going through the Jordan River, that was to be a picture of being baptized in the Spirit. That's when we receive the power to live that victorious Christian life. That's when we become effective in representing Jesus in this world. But what's really interesting, um, when we get to the part where they're going into the promised land, two and a half tribes decided they didn't want to go in. They'd had enough and they wanted to stay the other side of the river. Now God made it clear they still had to go in and fight for their brothers and help them received their inheritance. And this is a picture today, some people have settled for less. That does not mean they're not wonderful people. It doesn't mean they're inferior or powerless. It just means they've settled for less. God has more. God's heart is for more. We are to be brought out of bondage and into the promised land. And it's the same with us. We need to come out of bondage and into all that God has for us. And the reason, the reason they didn't go in, now the Bible says unbelief. I would take that a step further um, I mean, that's certainly true, but I think, well, what was the unbelief? They didn't get God to retrain their thinking. They still had the mentality of slaves. They couldn't go into the promised land because they didn't change their thinking. They didn't come to the place where they could recognize all that God had for them. Genesis 12, this is, uh, Jonathan started at the same place. This is my 
favorite section of scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, my first Bible fell to pieces at this place because I think it's so great and I keep turning back there. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, what a magnificent promise. And the reason I like it is the way it's worded. You are blessed to be a blessing. So God chooses a man, Abram. That was his name before when God chose him, Abram. And God was going to build a nation, Israel. And through that nation, God wanted to demonstrate what he had in his heart for everyone. It was never, never God's intention to share his love only with the Israelites. That was never what was on God's heart. And the same is true today. God's intention is not just to share his love with us. God's intention is to share his love with us so that we go out and take it to others. We are blessed to be a blessing. Um, I think it was last week Garland had this wonderful word from the Lord about uh, increasing our, our vision and what is God calling us to and what does God have for us. And, and I was sitting there and I was saying, God, what, what do you have for me? You know, what should my vision be? What do I want more of? And you know what I want more of? I want a better relationship with God. Because the more I taste of that relationship, the more I want from that relationship. And that's what God wants to give me. That's what God wants to pass on from me to other people. So it is so important. Everything else comes out of that. You know, one of the things that God has called me to is to be a grandmother. It is a calling on my life. God told me when my daughter's triplets were born, God said, Mary, I want you to help with those children. Oh, yes, 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 I will, I will, I will. I mean, I love that calling, and, and it is so important to me. It is not inferior to any other thing that I'm called to do. I love that calling, but it has to come out of my relationship with God. You know, I don't want to be a, a grumpy grandmother who doesn't like it when they make a mess or whatever. I want to be full of God, blessing them, and, and uh, out of my relationship with God, I know I can be a blessing. I, I may have told this story before, but it, it stays with me, and I'm never going to forget it. I used to, we used to, my husband Mike and I, we used to be with in Youth with a Mission. We were in a meeting in Amsterdam, and it was a, a meeting of YWAMers. So there is, these are all people who have committed their lives to God. Yes, I want to serve God. Yes, I want to put God first in my life. And the speaker asked us, and I, my numbers are not going to be exactly right, so I'm just going to say it was around 120 people there. And the speaker asked, who's been having a regular time with the Lord this week? 
120 people. Do you know how many of us there were? Maybe seven. Maybe seven. That has stuck with me. It is so incredibly sad, you know, that we think our ministry is more important than our relationship. It is not. It is not. And the more you enjoy your ministry, sorry, the more you enjoy your relationship, your ministry will flow. Whether it's... <laughs> Whether it's ministering to your grandkids or whether it's ministering in the church, whatever it is, it will flow. So going back right to the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden. God comes walking in the garden. He's walking in the garden because he wants to have fellowship with Adam and with Eve. God placed them in a peaceful, beautiful garden told them to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth from that place of peace, from that place of walking with the Lord. And this is God's plan for us today. From that place of walking with the Lord, of choosing to worship him, and be alone with him, from that place, we're able to live a life of victory over the powers of darkness and everything that comes against us. From that place. And it's so much easier. I find it so much easier when I'm alone with God to hear what he thinks of me, that he loves me, that he thinks I'm precious, that I'm a joy to him. I can hear that when I'm alone. Now, I, I want to share a bit from the story of Saul. That's why I have two Bibles here today. Crumbs. I have two Bibles. Only because the Passion Bible doesn't have the Old Testament yet. I actually, I still often, when something really speaks to me out of the passion, I always go back to the other Bible and see what it, oh yes, that does, it does say the same thing. Um, so I'm going to talk about King Saul, just a little bit. I, I think King Saul got a bit of a bum rap, because when we think of King Saul, we think of a jerk. We think of someone who was disobedient, didn't do the right thing. Well, I think King Saul started off really good. I think he was chosen by God. There's not a doubt in my mind that he was chosen by God. And I read so many uh, articles on, on, uh, on the internet, I got fed up with them because they were saying, oh, God chose Saul to punish the people of Israel. And, and it's like, doesn't read that way to me. It really doesn't read that way to me. And I'll show you why it doesn't read that way to me. So I'm starting in 1 Samuel 8. And Samuel's getting old. And he, point, he appointed his sons as Israel's leader, leaders. First one was called Joel and the second Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So 
Samuel's sons were jerks. They were not doing what they should have done. So the Israelites say, oh, I know. Let's have a king. Let's have a king. Now, this should not have come as a surprise to Samuel. It certainly didn't come as a surprise to God because in Deuteronomy 17, 14, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So God knew that the Israelites were going to want a king. I, to me, that reads like uh, when my kids were at school, they'd come home and everyone else has Nike shoes, mum. We really have to have them. It reads to me like that, you know. Everyone else is a king, we want a king. That's how, how I read it. It is definitely not what God wanted. And you'll see why later on. But um, God knew it was going to happen. Well, Samuel thinks, first of all, that they're rejecting him. And God says, no, they're, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me um, somewhere there. Uh, verse 6, they said, give us a king and lead us and the Lord... That oh, it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And, and I think the Israelites didn't think in terms of, oh, we're rejecting God. I think they thought in terms of, we're rejecting these jerk sons of, of Samuel. They didn't think, oh, let's reject God. I mean, that, it would be stupid to do that. So I, I, I would believe that's what they're thinking. Let's get rid of these guys. They're, they're not leading us well. Um, so the next thing that happens is, okay, God tells Samuel, tell them what it will mean to have a king. And Samuel tells them, that's in verse 10, following of chapter 8, you know, you're going to be taxed something rotten. Your sons will have to go to war. Your daughters will have to be perfumers. Uh, you'll have to send them as bakers. It's, it's a bit like, you know, when your kid says, oh, mommy, daddy, I want a puppy. Oh, but can you walk it every day? Oh, yes, yes. Can you pick up the dog poo? Yes. <laughs> you know, you warn them and you warn them. And they, all they see is that little puppy. And oh, puppies are so sweet and cute. And yes, they want that puppy. And about two months after they've got that puppy, guess who's doing all the walking? I remember when I was a kid, it was my mum. She walked the dog. We didn't have to pick up poop in those days. <laughs> okay, so, so they've decided they want a king. God says to, to Samuel, okay. Okay, give him a king. Okay, so chapter 9, we meet uh, Kish. He's... Uh, Saul's father, a man of, of standing. And Kish has sent his son out with a servant, so Saul and some servant, because they've lost some donkeys. So Saul and the servant, they're going looking for the donkeys. And they can't find the donkeys. Oh dear, 
what are we going to do? How can we find the donkeys? So the servant has this brilliant idea. Oh, oh, I know. There's this seer, this uh, man of God, and he knows things. So if we uh, take him a gift, um, he'll be able to tell us where the donkeys are. And uh, so eventually he agrees. So they go looking for this man of God. They can't find donkeys. They think they should be able to find a man of God. And they go looking for him, and they see this old guy walking down the street, and they say, oh, excuse me, do you know where the man of God is? And it's Samuel, and he says, yeah, it's me. And he says, you know, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. Uh, come and eat with me. I'm doing a sacrifice. And they think, oh, okay. And they go and eat with uh, Samuel. Samuel sends off the, the servant. He is alone with Saul. And this is, I think, chapter 10, verse 1, which, of course, is after chapter 9. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? So here's this guy. He is not looking to be a king. He is not looking for any of this. He is not some arrogant little pipsqueak who is waiting to be discovered. He is a tall, good-looking guy who's happy to go looking for donkeys. And then this guy comes and anoints him as king. He's just happy that the servant wasn't there and didn't see it. And, and then Samuel says, oh, and all these things are going to happen to you in the next little while very specific things, and then he said, oh, and you're going to prophesy as well. And it's like, yeah, yeah, right. And it happened exactly as Samuel said. Samuel is making it clear to Saul. Saul knows this must be God. I mean, who else could tell me all these things that are going to happen? I'm going to meet this person. He's got this many loaves of bread, and, and I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to prophesy, and I've never prophesied in my life, and I'm not looking to prophesy, and now he's prophesying. And it all happened. Then a little bit later, oh, in case you're wondering, you know, I, I, I said I think uh, the Israelites thought they were rejecting uh, Samuel's sons, I think they did think that way. So God makes it clear to them. Chapter 10, 17 to 19. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God makes it very clear. You have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities and you said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And I, th I think this is important. Sometimes we worry that we've missed something that God said. God is able to communicate if you have made a mistake. And if he wants you to know, he will let you know. And he is still creator God. So if you've blown it and gone the wrong direction, just repent and he'll bring it back. He'll bring you round again. So, so don't worry 
oh, did I miss it? Did I reject God? I didn't mean to. He'll make it clear. He's really good like that. So then, uh, what they do is they do a lottery. It's not like these days where if you've got, okay, I want to choose one student from the whole thousands of students we have at Conestoga. I can just do a thing on the computer and pick one. No, they couldn't do it in those days. They were limited. So they did it bit by bit. It's the same, works out the same probability, the chance of choosing one out of, I have no idea how many. But first of all, they chose the tribes by lot. So 12 tribes, pick one. Oh, it's Benjamin. Then they pick clans. They pick one, and it was someone or other whose name I can't remember. And they pick him. Then they pick, eventually they get down to uh, families. And they pick the family of Kish. They don't stop there. They pick one person from the family of Kish. And it was Saul. And whoops, where is Saul? Like I said, this was no arrogant little pipsqueak waiting to be discovered. This is a guy who did not want to be king and was happy looking for donkeys. Thank you very much. But of course, Samuel knew where he was hiding. No one else knew. Samuel had uh, a word and said, oh, he's hiding in the supplies. So they bring him out. And uh, they anoint him. They recognize he is king. And some valiant men joined themselves to Saul. And some jerks said, good grief, why would this guy be king? We don't think he'd make a good king. Oh, what a loser. We don't want him. And uh, Saul kept silent. Didn't try and defend himself. Didn't try and say, no, I'm the king, you shut up. He just kept silent because this was the man that Saul was. You know, if God has called you to do something, you don't need to defend yourself when people are attacking. In fact, we see in the next chapter why God chose Saul. Chapter 11. So um, this guy's some Amorite, Nahash. The Ammonites besieged Jabesh-Gilad, and uh, they were much stronger. And the men of, of Jabesh said, please don't kill us. Give us a treaty. We, we don't want to die. And uh, the leader said, okay, you can become my servants with the proviso that I get to gouge out every man's eye, right eye. Not, not much fun. And, um, but then, you know, as not much fun as it is to lose your right eye, it's above losing your life. So they said, okay, um, just give us seven days so that we can see if anyone will help us. Is there anyone out there? And if there isn't, then okay, you can gouge out our right eye. And so they, they let people know, and uh, Saul was out. And uh, he comes back in, and he says, hey, guys, what's up? And they told him what's happening, and it says, when Saul hears about it, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, 
and he burned with anger. That's chapter 11, verse 6. And he has these uh, oxen, he cuts them up, sends a piece of oxen to all the different tribes and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't come and fight. Very clear message, you know, here's a piece of oxen you're going to get cut up to. And, but of course, on its own, it wouldn't be enough, but the Spirit of God stirred them all up, and they all came out, and they all fought with uh, Saul as their king, and they defeated them. And everyone was happy because Saul, he was king, and he'd done a good thing. And then it said, uh, oh, the scoundrels, the, the people that had said, oh, who wants this jerk to be king? He's no good. Everyone said, oh, we should kill them off now. And this is what Saul said, no one, no one will be put to death today for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. I think it's clear, God chose a good man when he chose Saul. He took his leadership eventually, he took it seriously and he didn't want to hurt anyone who had been against him previously, who'd been a jerk, complained, or whatever. God chose a good man. Now, that's a long story to make a point. My point is simply, Saul started well. And the question I have is, what about us? You know, so often we start well, and then we mess it up. We start off really good and strong and we're having our quiet time and then suddenly we realize, I haven't had a quiet time for the last 10 days. Saul did not continue to do well. And in chapter 13, the Philistines come against him now. There were lots of them. I mean lots of them. And... 13 verse 6, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in the pits and cisterns. They were frightened. Saul was frightened. Everyone was running from him. So Saul did what he shouldn't have done. Samuel was late. Samuel wasn't there when he was supposed to be there, so Saul did the sacrifice. He took on a role that wasn't his. And then when Samuel arrives, Samuel says, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. (coughs) But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And then there's something missing. Something missing which I find incredibly sad. Saul did not repent. Saul did not repent. And this, to me, this is the key. This is the key. I've spoken before, used a quote from Mother Basilea Schlink. I don't even think her book is a, might be still available, called Repentance, the Joy-Filled Life. She says, repentance, the gateway to heaven. 
repentance, the way home to the Father's heart and to overflowing joy. For what is repentance but the tailwind driving us into the open arms of the Father? A foretaste of heaven, a gift of the Holy Spirit. I love that one, a tailwind blowing us into the open arms of the Father. Now, we tend to think of repentance in terms of uh, things we've done wrong. But where God's been taking me recently is my thinking. What do I think? What do I say about myself when no one else is there? And the children of Israel, you know, they failed to allow God to retrain their thinking from the slavish mentality of Egypt to become those who are fit to walk in covenant with him. Bill Johnson says, sometimes we repent enough to be forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom. We repent enough to be forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom. And I've heard Bill say this many times. He says, I can't afford to have a thought about me in my head that he doesn't have in his head about me. I've heard him say that several times. Every time it, it convicts me. We could go uh, further into the life of Saul and we never hear of him coming to repentance. And then we see David. You know, and in reality, was David a better person than Saul? You know, this is a guy who committed adultery, had sex with a married woman, gets her pregnant, tries to get her husband to come home so that he's fighting in David's war, where David should have been, brings her husband home, but he's too honorable to enjoy having sex with his wife when all his mates are out fighting so he won't leave the king. So David tries to get him drunk, <clears throat> still doesn't work. So then David says, okay, I'm going to make sure he gets killed on the front and basically murders him. You know, is David a better guy than Saul? In reality, I don't think so. The things that David did were awful. But there is a huge difference. David knew how to throw himself on God's mercy. David knew how to throw himself on God's mercy. Psalm 51. I'm just going to read a little bit. But this is a man who understood. God, give me mercy from your fountain of forgiveness. I know your abundant love is enough to wash away my guilt because your compassion is so great. Take away this shameful guilt of sin. Forgive the full extent of my rebellious ways and erase this deep stain on my conscience. For I am so ashamed. I feel such pain and anguish within me. That's Psalm 51. David knew how to throw himself on God's mercy. 
You know, the other day I, I asked God, I asked God these questions. God, what do you like about me? They're really important questions to ask. And, and I felt God saying that he liked my passion. And I thought, oh, my passion for you, that's great. And, and I felt him saying, no, not just that. He said, I love your passion for tennis. I love your passion for teaching math. I love your passion for playing with your grandkids. And, and I received it, and I wasn't convinced. I mean, I was convinced that God was saying it, but I thought, okay, I'll, I'll put that on the shelf and, and let God say something further to me about it, because, you know, what's so great about enjoying playing with your grandkids? And Anyway, then I came across this scripture. Oh, it's the story. So um, Elisha is telling the king of Israel to strike the ground with his arrows. And the king did it three times. Boink, boink, boink. Three times. All Israel would suffer because of this passionless act. It was an act without passion. Uh, 2 Kings 13, 19, the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you'll defeat it only three times. So all Israel suffered because this man was not a man of passion. Well, David was a man of passion. David was a man of passion. He spent much time alone with God before he became king. And, and he understood that God would be found by those that seek him. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I, I read that and I struggled with it a bit because I find it difficult to be still. And I, I looked a little further, and one commentary said this word that uh, in the King James Version it's translated as rest, which means still, but it could also be translated as take a leisure walk. Take a leisure walk. Just like Adam walking with God in the garden, having fellowship. True rest is found in right relationship with God. True rest is found in right relationship with God. You know, there are too many people, Christians, who are working for God's attention. They're trying to earn his favor when really we should be working from his favor. Christ has accepted us. We don't need to work to get it. It, to get acceptance, we do need to spend time alone with him. We need to listen to him, listen to him telling us he loves us. We need that relationship alone with God. And I will jump to here. You know, God called Saul, God anointed Saul. 
Saul did great, but God wanted someone after his own heart. I believe that could have been Saul. He could have made that choice, but he didn't. And the same is true for us today. You know, we're, we're all moving in the spirit. It's great. We worship and serve God here and have a great time. What about tomorrow morning? Uh, so important. I, I was reading, uh, I joined this Facebook page where you have to read the New Testament in four months. I, I used to do it a lot. I've read through the Bible, I don't know, 20, 30 more times. And... Uh, haven't done it for a while because I get really slow when I read. And I'm having the same problem now, you know, trying to read the New Testament. I read, oh, wow, wow, is that, oh, yeah, you know, I read this book so many times. And yet God speaks to me again and again and again. So I was in Mark 4. It's the parable of the sower. And uh, after Jesus has talked to the crowd, he's alone with the 12. And in verse 11, he says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those on the outside, everything is said in parables. And I thought, well, that's great. And then verse 13, Jesus says, you guys don't understand, do you? You know, the disciples were as dull as everyone else. They did not get it. But then they spent time with Jesus. They didn't get it until they spent time with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus is what makes all the difference. Time with Jesus. Jesus taught in parables so that only those who had a heart for him would understand. You're going to have a heart when you spend time with him. And I have to mention 4.12 because it says, repent and be forgiven. And I want to emphasize how important repentance never stands alone. Repentance with God, it never stands alone. Repent and be forgiven. They always go together. So maybe you've blown up. Maybe you've blown it big time. Maybe you've walked away from God. Maybe you've blown it small time, spoken negatively about yourself. All you have to do is come to him, say you're sorry, and receive his forgiveness. And ask him to help you to change the way you think. Because that's what we need to do. Change the way we think about ourselves. You know, the better you feel about yourself, the more you're able to see positive things in other people too. But it's time spent alone with God. So I am not going to say anymore, but I am going to ask you to pray. You know, it's not a humble thing to say that you're weak and useless. It's a lie. It's not a humble thing to say you're no good. It's a lie. And we need to repent of those lies. So I, I would like to um, encourage anyone who has a desire for God to change their thinking, to stand up as a declaration, God, I, do God, I don't want to think negatively anymore. 
God, I want to think positively. God, I want to declare the truth. So if that's you, I'd like you to take a stand right now as a declaration that you are going to break free from the lies that you have allowed your mind to receive. You are going to walk in the truth of who you are. Father, we declare this morning that you love us. We declare this morning that we are valuable to you. We declare this morning that we are a powerful people, that we are not weak, we are strong, that we will move mountains in your name. We will see victory in your name because you are in us. And we ask you this morning that you would come and you would change our thinking that you would work with us, you would remind us when we say something negative that it's not the truth. <clears throat> that you would remind us when we speak something out that is wrong, that we will not going to live that any longer. Quicken our hearts to the truth, Father. Help us to declare the truth of who you made us to be. Precious, loved, valuable, beautiful, important, we are all these things because we are yours.